All right, cool, man. Let's bring somebody up. Are you guys here, Chris and Jeff and Travis? Let's let's get started. You guys get ready. Hey, fellas, can you hear me? All right. Yeah. Cool, Hello, Chris. Cool name. <laughs> so yeah, it's a pretty straightforward question. Just wanted to kind of hear you guys elaborate on how over time where you've gotten the most use and value from your time and how that shifted over time. I mean, I kind of figure, you know, given Nick where you kind of stand on things, I'm going to say that that's pretty obvious answer to the question, uh, you know, from the sweat equity side, building a business to where you are now, but nonetheless, we'd like to hear it. Yeah. uh, I'll, I'll start, I guess. So early days I was trading my time for money, period. I was doing work in exchange for money for my time. It was running my service business, right? If I didn't do the actual work, I didn't get paid. So therefore, I wasn't an entrepreneur. When we hired some employees, the best use of my time changed over time to planning, hiring, training, managing, firing, you know, dealing with some customer stuff that was pretty problematic. And over time, it's just all about slowly delegating more of that. And it becomes way more important to hire and train and onboard. And um, that's what I do a lot of now. I'm I guess my day-to-day has also shifted a lot in the last four years that we've been building our real estate companies. From the beginning, I was doing the underwriting. I was talking to the bankers. I was trying to find the deal. I was on site at the properties, pulling tree limbs off of roofs. Um, I was doing everything. It was me. Um, My partner was running the service company. He was doing some of the stuff, but I was doing everything that there was. And we had two or three properties and I could do it all. Um, Now we have nine employees and I'm trying to train somebody right now and underwriting and dealing with my bankers and dealing with my attorneys so that I can focus on big picture and growing the company and raising more capital. I think the next step after that, I'll be delegating some of the investor relations and having somebody else sit in on the meetings with me when I'm talking to LPs and sending cash, you know, sending updates on the, on our properties. We'll have somebody doing that stuff. So I want to, I want to hear from Chris because he's a couple steps ahead of me. He doesn't, he hasn't underwritten a deal in a while. Yeah. Um, I started the same way you did. I used to trade my time for money. Um, I actually never started another business, sold it and used that money to get into real estate. I used real estate as a way to build my business. And it's what I've been doing um, ever since. I think the most effective use of of my time as it sits, and again, this goes back to something I've talked about even on a podcast about what are your goals and ambitions? Do you, do you want to be somebody doing a deal or two a year, or do you want to grow what I call a platform, which is building a team that's doing deals? And for me, it was the latter. I wanted a platform. I wanted to be able to work on other things in my life and still have real estate being bought and operated. And so I just really took this approach of um, I wanted to make like the goal was to make myself irrelevant. And that's really tough for a founder or a CEO. We're we're often taught that those have like the, I think the perception is that they need to be the most relevant people in the room. And I would argue uh, against that. I would say um, the more you work to, to become irrelevant, what you're really saying is I'm going to hire this awesome team with people that are way more skilled in, in any one function of real estate than I would ever be. And if I do this right, then I can get to a point where it's not that I don't want to work on real estate, but I can focus on bigger initiatives that have nothing to do with the day to day. And I think if I was to wrap up this little part on just kind of somebody that we kind of all know is a guy like Elon Musk. I mean, the guy's running five of the most well-known companies in the world, yet the only thing we have in common with him is we both have 24 hours in a day, just like he has 24 hours in a day. He has no more hours or he doesn't get special extra minutes that we don't have. He looks at life as how can I be unbelievably um, 
good at delegating the right things and focusing on the things that are most important to him. And I think he's a model for how to get the most of your time. There's not many people on the planet right now that are able to kind of seem like they're doing so much with the same 24 hours that we get. So my most effective time right now is figuring what's the next thing to delegate and then spend the time to hire a great person to do that thing. I want to I want to ask you, Chris, and I think somebody posted yesterday. I was kind of hard on a, a buddy, Rohan, of mine. He posted about email. He said, um, you know, if you're not delegating your email inbox for $6 an hour to somebody from the Philippines or wherever, a VA basically, then you're not using, you know, you're not getting the most value out of your time and the ROI on the time you spend. And I feel pretty strongly about email um, because my job in the, uh, the past five years of my career evolution has been getting the important emails out of my inbox or having them come from somebody to somebody else with me being just BC or carbon copied on them. Um, Chris, do you have a VA answering emails for you or do, uh, how, how does, how do you manage your email inbox? Because I feel pretty strongly that I don't, I don't know that I'll ever get a person to manage my email inbox. Yeah, I used to, and I stopped. Um, I don't know. I, I just didn't, it wasn't a function of not having the right person. I just like to control that part of my my world. So what my assistant does do is if I am if I've engaged in an email and that's going to lead to setting up an appointment or a meeting or some type, then I immediately loop her in and she takes it from there. Mm -hmm. um, I decide what I'm going to spend time on emails or not. And I think the biggest thing that this is just where we are as a society. At any given point, 50 people can email me. And it's really easy for me to think like, man, I just got to respond to everybody. And I think I have to, I, we all do. And it's not just like us because of maybe the position we're in. Like we're, everybody's just getting a lot more emails every day. And for me, it's just getting more comfortable. It's like, I'm just not going to respond to things that aren't, that I don't feel like I need to respond to. On the flip side of that, and I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth. And this is why I always am in a dilemma. I don't like it when I send an email to somebody and I don't get a response. Um, with that said, I'm very cautious of when you email someone, you're basically saying, hey, I'm getting on your to-do list. You need to dedicate 10 to 15 minutes to me. So I just think the world maybe we're headed in or the way I think about it is I only send emails when I can justify the other person spending some time on mine. And um, yeah, like, I, I don't know if that's answering the question, but I, I do manage no, my own email. I feel the exact same way because I feel like an email goes out because somebody wants somebody else to do something. They want something to happen. My entire business, I mean, obviously my employees communicate via Slack and they communicate together by a phone, text message, whatever it is. My customers communicate with us in a different inbox. But if an email is coming between our executive team it's because there's action required. My banker needs something. My attorney needs something. The inspector needs something. The appraiser needs something. Emails that are coming in require action. I just try to get those emails to not go to me. Yeah. <laughs> like that's, that's the goal, right? Is, Hey, this is an action that's required. If I'm not the one that has to do that action, the email should not come to me. So my goal, instead of delegating my email inbox is, or sorry, getting somebody paid in my email inbox is, Hey, loop in other members of the team that can actually get some stuff done. If I, and I still do a lot of work, right? But yeah, that's that's the way I feel. And, and if you're, and if you're CC'd on an email and you don't feel like you should be doing anything with it, just don't respond. And if people are wondering why you didn't, is say because this is somebody else's email to respond. Like as long as you continue to be the one responding in group emails, then people will assume that you are going to be a person that needs to be responding. So 
The anyway. best days for me are when I wake up and I see, I spend the morning watching business happen in my company through being carbon copied on emails. I'm, I'm, I'm getting, I'm staying up to date. I'm reading emails about what's going on, but none of it requires my action. That's a good day. But uh, Chris, ask another question, man. There's only three people in line. So you get, you get to bend our ear. So hop back in with another question. And I'm encouraging the 30 people watching to type up a little question and get up here and ask us something. But thanks, Chris. You got anything else you want us to talk about? Well, why don't I let the other guys go first and then I'll hop back on. How does that sound? Sounds great, Chris. I appreciate it. So how do I, there we go. Guys, Jeffrey, how's it going? Good. How are y'all? Hey, Jeffrey. What's going on, Chris? I. It's so funny to see people's. Uh, I. I know this face. Right. I feel like mm-hmm. I know you. <laughs> what do you got? We're just a few miles apart, and so the genesis of the question is. Uh, I think uncle G sent out an email or, or posted on social earlier this week that, uh, that's Grant Cardone for those of you that didn't catch that, that, uh, uh, he's moving into office buildings. I think he's, he put together a speculative fund and, uh, I guess they found their first high rise office that they're offering to their investors. So thoughts about grant aside, um, how do you guys think about, moving beyond the current asset class that you are in. I mean, you've each specialized for a reason. I think Chris, when I know about your background, you've, you've had a pretty storied career in real estate across all kinds of different pieces and settled into, uh, intentionally into class B industrial. So knowing what else is out there, how do you guys think about moving beyond or, or into something else where it may not be a direct add on like for grant, it's like, well, wait, you're the multifamily guy. What are you doing into office buildings now? Is, are you really an expert? And so the, the real question is, is the fundamental of real estate consistent enough that even with your specificity, you could look at a deal and say, you know what? I'm not the office building expert, but a deal's a deal. And I think I could put the pieces together to make that happen. I'll start. Um, well, I think there, there's two ways to look at it. And you're right. I have been involved in a lot of different asset types. And at some point, I was involved in lots of asset types at one period of time. What I what I think happens there is you have a company that's trying to grow, but they're trying to stay in one market. And there's only so many deals you can do in a certain asset class in a market. So you end up just kind of getting into other asset classes. What I would tell you my experience was, is uh, we were good at a lot of things, not great at anything. And as as we started looking to raise more capital and do more deals, people start getting more sophisticated. The checks start, start getting bigger and they want to know, you know, what are you focused on? And when your answer is, well, we're building townhomes and apartments and we're developing land and then it's people start asking, well, I could just go, I'd rather put my money behind the townhome guy or the self-storage guy or whatever it may be. Or, um, and so, then you say, well, how do you be singular focused if you want to keep growing? That's where you need to build a business model where you can continue to go into new markets. And for us, and again, this is my experience, and and I, uh, a guy on Twitter tweeted this the other day, and I've actually been thinking about it every day. Is his quote was, uh, as you narrow the focus, you increase the quality. Our business has gotten exponentially better because we are willing to focus on one asset type, um, and and we feel like there, you kind of discover all these new things. So your question is, what would we do next? 
my whole focus right now as the leader of the company is we have to build such a great platform that if we chose to get into another asset type, what we're really doing is just going and hiring an expert team and just plopping them into the um, the platform and they're running with it. But to take it one step further, as it just relates to my desires and ambitions, having done it for 17 years, I think the next move for us isn't thinking about the next asset type is beginning to be a capital provider to uh, operators and sponsors that are experts in their field and just placing bets on singular focused you know, horses in certain markets or in certain asset types. So that's kind of how I think about it. So you can, to, to question that, Chris, I guess you, you feel confident enough in your ability to understand the fundamentals of real estate, what assumptions somebody's making to then vet a deal and get behind the specialists. That's yep. what you're saying. Yeah. Rather than have to come up with the next great kind of idea that we can run with. Yeah. And, and in my, in my opinion, on the one hand, real estate is a small business. And if you don't have a competitive advantage, it's really hard to find yield right now. So if you think about trying to start a small business in four different spaces, five different spaces, that's not the way that you nurture and find a competitive advantage. Chris has a competitive advantage in industrial. I have a competitive advantage in self-storage. So that's why we're here. But yeah, the fundamentals of real estate are the fundamentals and the rising tides rise all ships. And we're really just betting on the United States economy and the interest rates and all the things that make real estate more valuable over time. I mean, we can find alpha by outperforming, out operating others, but it's really, really hard to um, you know, not see the correlation between so many different asset classes. So, so yeah, it's about understanding the fundamentals of a deal. If you're looking at a deal, what is this person assuming? What what kind of assumptions are they making? What what kind of rent increases are they going to have? What's what's going to happen with their debt? Chris can look at my deal and he has, and he has picked it apart and said, Nick, you haven't thought of X, Y, and Z. And um, that's just because of his, his real estate knowledge. The only other thing I would add, and this goes back to, I think, the types of companies that we end up seeing when it's kind of small business, real estate, private equity. And I'm kind of I'm I'm speaking today from that perspective. I'm not the Blackstone of the world. And so anything I say is coming from this perspective. But you, if you stay small, and when I say small, I mean kind of that three to five person company that's, you know, you might look at their website and yeah, they have like an apartment deal and maybe they have an office building and, uh, you know, they have, uh, you know, a retail center, whatever. They call themselves opportunistic investors, I guess. They they call themselves opportunistic investors, but they're usually single market. So they're playing in their own backyard, which they know really well, which they might tell you that's their competitive advantage. But they're also building a company that kind of acts as a pseudo like family office, like get the couple partners rich and we're going to have a few admins that kind of work alongside us, but we're going to stay really small. And where I'm going with this is as soon as you uh, back to like what capital wants to see, where as, as you start raising more capital and the capital providers become more sophisticated, they want to know that you have a competitive advantage, you're singular focused. Um, and so what I guess what I'm saying um, here is it's the same for the team that you're going to build. So if you really are going to scale and you're not going to be that kind of two partners and three admin type of company, and I'm kind of generalizing a little, but you're going to grow a 25 to 50 person team, just like the capital providers are going to be a little more serious on you, the type of people that want to come work for a 25 to 50 person company, it's very hard as you're as you're uh, emerging from a five person company to a 25 person company to recruit great talent when your answer is, 
Uh, I don't know what she'll be working on tomorrow. It could be a townhome deal. Maybe it's going to be an office building. Like the real talent that's really sophisticated also wants to work for somebody that has a moat or a competitive advantage. And that's typically going to be more of a singular asset focus, maybe two assets at the most. Um, I've noticed it with capital, but more importantly, like the best people we've hired, a lot of things they ask us during interviews is like, what am I going to be working on? And you need to have a great story to tell them that's not, I can't really tell you what tomorrow's deal will be, but you know, we're just really good and we make returns. It doesn't, it, you kind of hit a wall is what I've found. So if, if uncle, if you ask uncle G Grant Cardone, why he's going into the office space, he would probably answer it to his LPs the same way you'll answer to your LPs when you pitch them on a new operator in some new town. Hey, I found a specialist who is very good at what they're doing and this is why we're doing it. Yeah. Is that right? And he's also large enough. I'm assuming he's raising probably a couple hundred million bucks or a lot of money. So he has the resources to put a full-time team that that team is only going to be focused on office. They're not going to be doing some multi someday and in office the other day. And to get to a size where you can have teams only focused on one asset, you have to have a certain amount of capital under management or a certain amount of resources. It's terrific. Thanks guys. You bet. This is fun. What do you think of this, Chris? Oh, this is great. It's better than Clubhouse. I think a lot of people are having trouble uh, hearing in here. But yeah, it is, it is a nice format. Relaxed, organized. Mr. T. Hey, guys. How you doing? This is, uh, this is Ted Stratman from Chicago. Hey, Ted. Hey, guys. Hey, I, I had a, uh, you mentioned 1031 a few times earlier on, and I specialize in multifamily brokerage here in Chicago. And we obviously have a lot of clients who, you know, we discuss potential 1031 post sale of the asset. Um, their answer or their, you know, what they want to do typically changes based upon either their age, you know, what their goal is with their, with their capital gains. Um, and what their, you know, hands-on approach is or isn't. And so I want to run it by you guys, what your thoughts were on, you know, wh whenever the time comes for you to do a 1031, would your model change? You know, would your investment criteria adjust based upon whether you want to preserve the gains or you want to continue to grow and, you know, meet the same parameters, return parameters that you previously had in that investment that you sold. But, you know, more so high level, you know, how would your, investment criteria change um, based upon the 1031 deadline and pressure to, to replace those funds. You start, Chris, because you've done a couple of these. Yeah. So great question. The, the investment criteria really, I think you start getting in trouble when you're really, you know, start stretching or you kind of justify, well, this is a 1031. Now, with that said, you know, let's just say you sell something and it's a $10 million gain and at current rates, let's say you're going to be paying, you know, two to two and a half million of, uh, of, uh, capital gains tax, which is a basically a zero. You're giving that to the government. What we will do is we'll just say, look, uh, we, if we're stretching a little on this to what we would usually do, we're at least preserving the two and a half million in capital for another day. And so we might require a little bit less of an overall return because we're not having to give 25% of it away to begin with. 
I think the second thing that's interesting that I don't think a lot of people talk about as much, but we've done several is it's a reverse 1031. And what a reverse 1031 is, is I'm going to go buy the asset first and then uh, I'm going to go sell, you know, I'm going to go buy asset A with my money. And then when I sell asset B, I'm going to 10, I'm basically going to 1031 those funds into an asset that I've already acquired and basically pay myself back. But just like a um, a 1031, that still has a time limit on it. So if I buy asset A with my funds, I still have X amount of days to sell the other asset and replace that capital, or I don't get the benefit. And so we've done a lot more reverse 1031s because we think that, you know, especially in a market where a lot of people might be trying to 1031, you might not be finding the right opportunities. At least when we reverse, we've already found an opportunity we really like. Now it's a question of, can we sell the other asset uh, quick enough to replace that capital? And in a market like we're in right now, where, you know, liquidity is flush and people are moving and shaking, that seems to be less of a risk to reverse than it does kind of uh, on the other way around. So, um, yeah, my two answers are think more about reverse 1031 and then also, you know, how do you model that additional capital that you get to keep rather than paying as a tax? And it gives you a little more room to maybe go up on price than you otherwise would. I love it. I don't even think I have anything to add. I'll, I'll say that people who are listening to my podcast and have no idea what a 1031 is, it's when you're, you sell an asset and you identify a like kind asset. It's also called a like kind exchange that you can buy with the proceeds. And if you place that money within what, 180 days, Chris, um, that's, you don't have a capital event, meaning you can avoid those that 43% or 20% or whatever the capital gains tax rate is. Yeah. And basically, so you, you sell your money from the proceeds from the sale, go sit in a third party escrow account. So you can't ever touch the money. You have 45 days to identify uh, up to three properties that you basically would tell the IRS, these are the three we've identified. And then you have another X amount of days to close on them um, or your 1031s null and void. Um, so one other nuance I just learned, it's, nobody asked this, but uh, if we're talking about 1031s, we actually elected to 1031 last year. We placed about 80% of the money. The other deal we had fell through. Uh, we had crossed the 45-day threshold, so our funds had to sit in escrow for the full 180 days. The IRS does not let you take your funds out of escrow once you've passed the 45-day mark, which I never encountered that before. There's some rules around it. Good attorneys have good attorneys and be able to close quick if you have to. We got Philip. You here? Can you hear us? Yeah, yeah, good. Um, yeah, I'm just thinking. You you said it's been very hot right now in the past kind of you know in the past year or so, the past few months. Do you think that's generally because just of how hot the market is right now, or do you think it's because of self storage in particular is getting more attention from institutions and other investors? Yeah, I think I'm a little, you know, I, I maybe make it sound like I'm complaining that deals are hard to find. Um, no, I think it's just deal, good deals are always hard to find. In any market, it's hard to buy good cash flowing assets. So I kind of, you know, I've, I've gone on a couple of Twitter rants where some of my buddies have texted me and said, Nick, are you going to get out of self-storage? Jesus, it looks like you can't find anything. And that's not the case at all. Um, we're letting LOIs fly every day. I mean, yes, 90% of them get rejected. But um, yeah, there's there's still deals. You just got to do a lot of work. We're doing a lot of work to find deals. It's where we put 
almost all of our innovation energy. Like if somebody asks me, what, what's your proprietary blend of making a lot of money in the self-storage business? It's, it's finding deals. That's the only thing that maybe I'm not going to share everything that we do in because yeah, it's the hardest part, the most important part. And we work our butt off and we put spend a lot of money to try to find deals, but they're there. Yeah, they're there. There's, you know, 1100 mom and pop self-storage facilities in just New York and Pennsylvania. So they're there. I would just add uh, maybe two things is one, and, and we've been hearing this in pitch decks for a long time, but I think we're actually now finally starting to really, really see it. Real estate's a hedge against inflation. So the price of lumber is up like 400% right now. It makes the wood that is in the buildings that you own that you paid much cheaper for much more valuable. So the cost to replace the things you already own is... Um, is going up dramatically. So there's a rush when when people think of inflation and we're seeing it right now. I mean, I have a buddy that's building a house and his lumber bid came in 140% of his budget that he set, you know, 4 or 5 months ago. So it makes buying existing real estate much more attractive is what they call a hedge against inflation. And then the second thing I would say is while we live in a world right now where everything you hear about and is on Twitter and social media and the news is crypto, 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 I think what people have to remember is there is a whole generation of people, aka call it just older generations, that, don't, that don't believe in that stuff. What they believe in is, can I feel it, see it, touch it? And when they think about safety, when a young generation thinks about safety, they, maybe they're fleeing into Bitcoin. Well, when a you know boomer thinks about safety, psychologically right now, they think about putting it in a building, something they can walk on, touch, feel, make sure that their money is kind of in the ground. And so I think what you're seeing right now, to your point, is one, A, ton of money in the system, B, um, ton of, it, it, it's going to make real estate interesting the rest of the year. So ton of money in the system, really low interest rates. There's a fear that taxes are about to double. So there's going to be a lot of transacting throughout the rest of the year. Uh, three, inflation starting to run. And uh, four or five, I don't even know which one I'm on. Well, certain asset classes, another big one is that certain asset classes, I'm blessed enough that mine's one of them, have done really well through a couple of different, really traumatic things for the US economy over the past 20 years. And people look at it and say, okay, well, self-storage did really well in 2009, 10, 11, 12. Self-storage did absolutely fine the last year in America. Um, that seems like a pretty darn safe bet. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's a store of value. Real estate can be a store of value just like crypto can. Yep. Great. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it, Philip. It's hard when you start counting, Chris, because you got to really remember to recall stuff. I know. I've had to stop doing it in my uh, <laughs> podcast because I always mess up. <laughs> and you guys can push these little buttons down at the bottom to laugh at my jokes for me right here. You can push that laugh one. Perfect. Look at that. Megan, <laughs> Chris? Hey. Hey, how are you guys doing? Good. How are you doing? Great. Doing well. Um, I've been following you guys on Twitter for some time, and you're both uh, great follows. You know, I enjoy uh, reading and listening to uh, some of your tidbits about your 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 space and real estate. Um, I just had a quick question in terms of, uh, I guess, career guidance. Uh, I'm currently a CPA, and I'm in in Atlanta, Georgia, um, and 
my specialty is affordable housing and multi commercial multifamily real estate, where uh, we focus on helping real estate developers and syndicators um, get low income housing tax credits, um, affordable, you know, energy, uh, energy efficient. That's credits. what you do for your day job, right? Correct. Correct. Okay. And, and so, and on, and on the side, you, uh, you have a couple properties of your own or you're considering doing a couple properties. So a couple of friends from college recently founded their own, <clears throat> their own, uh, real estate venture where they, they purchase and gobble up, um, various value add multifamily communities across uh, Georgia, South Carolina, and Tennessee. Um, and I'm currently a limited partner in that. Um, so I have my nine, current nine to five job. And then I also, you know, have spent, have allocated some capital into getting some equity in their partnerships. But in addition to that, you know, I'd eventually like to be able to develop and form my own um, firm or LLC that can uh, purchase some properties. Um, I was just wondering if you guys could provide guidance on how to um, be able to balance, you know, my current nine to five CPA job. Cause I currently love it. And I, I feel like I gain a lot of, uh, of knowledge on it um, while also being able to own and, and manage some properties because I, I'm not yeah. exactly cash flush, but I feel like I, you know, with the right partners, I can, infuse a, a good bit of knowledge into sort of structuring these LLCs yep. and um, these profit loss. Allocations. So you want to, so you want to know how do you balance the nine to five job with getting going at your own stuff? Correct. So yeah, I'll start because I, I'm, I guess I, I did it back with, again, real estate is a small business and there's actions that need to take place to serve your tenants and your investors and to operate the real estate. In 2011, when my partner and I started our business, I was a full-time track and field. I was doing probably 30 hours a week in uh, athletics, another 30 hours a week in school. Um, had a new girlfriend that's now my wife that I was pretty excited to hang out with. And I found time to start my business. So, and there's no easy way to do that, right? You have to be efficient and you have to work your ass off. So like, there's no trick answer here. I mean, you can do the Tim Ferriss model where you try to outsource yourself from your job. Um, or you can just work a lot and try to be very, very efficient when you work and choose the right stuff to work on. Um, there's no, there's no right answer. It's, it's hard. You gotta be incredibly resourceful. Yeah. I don't have a ton to add here just because I've, I've never worked for anybody. So this is all I've ever done. Um, but the one thing I would say is, um, one, if if I was in your situation, I would be learning everything I could about a certain kind of deal type or or knowing what you want to get into and at least being able to tell that story if you do t choose to take the leap of why, even though it's your first deal, you're worthy of raising investor capital. And what I would tell you is assuming you don't want to go just like buy one single family house and start the company that way, if you could, if you could, um, you know, get to a point where maybe your first deal was in that five to $10 million range, which, which seems high, but it's not terribly high in most markets. And you can charge, even when you close that deal, a 1% acquisition fee. Well, you can kind of start right out the gate with a hundred thousand dollars of kind of fee income coming in right out the gate. And I've seen a lot of people go that way is spend their time really working to find that first deal. And maybe it doesn't have to be a $10 million deal where you can totally 
fully replace, you know, a significant portion of income up front. But taking the leap once you kind of have a, you know, a, a bird in the hand and be able to kind of land onto some fees as soon as you close to to kind of soften the blow is how I've seen a lot of people do it. Yeah, do a deal big enough where it requires your full-time attention and compensates you for your full-time attention. Yeah, I love it. Thanks, Nate. So it's appreciate it. All right. We got Martin, Chris, Travis. We got some questions coming, Chris. Chris if you see any you like down here, if you're scrolling down on the right side, Chris, and you see any you like, we you can you can right click and move it to the top. Okay. And if you guys want to upvote, if you're listening, upvote these questions, the ones you want to hear. And if we're getting close to the end, we will uh, pull the folks up who have the good questions. But Martin, how's it going? Doing well. How are you guys? Good. This is fun. Thanks for coming up. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so I'm, uh, I guess, what you would call more of a Zoomer than a Boomer. Um, pretty big into blockchain project. And th there's been a theme that's been going around where, you know, in the future, people see real estate might become sort of like a fractionalized token on the blockchain. Like say, for example, you might have a, a storage facility and you could split that up into, you know, like 10,000 tokens on the blockchain and, and people can trade that freely and exchange it and own a, a share of the ownership in your facility. Um, wanted to get your views. Like, is this something you see, you know, happening anytime in the short term or, or even happening at all? Like, is it, is it even, you know, things you guys consider on your radar right now? I've I've been at conferences the last three years hearing about this. I think there was a company called Harbor that was the first one, maybe not the first one, but they were kind of big coming out the gates. And I think the St. Regis Hotel in Aspen or uh, one of the big uh, Colorado cities was the first one to do this. But it makes all the sense in the world to me. If you can take a company public and you can take like a REIT public, which is just a, which is just a, uh, it's just a grouping of buildings. It makes a lot of sense to me that you could take, you know, as something as small as a single family house public. Um, and with the technology the and the yeah. paperwork is simpler. It could, yeah, you're right, Chris. And the interesting part is because you can fractionalize even really small assets, call it sub even million dollar assets. What, what was interesting to me is you can have a lot of people in the community you know, invest in projects that they live down the street from. Um, you have a lot more ownership within the community and a lot more accountability within the community, which ultimately makes cities more durable when the wealth is spread amongst a lot of its inhabitants. So I don't know when it's coming. I don't study it every day, but I would say it first hit my radar maybe four years ago. And it makes all the sense in the world and how far we've come in four years. Like I wouldn't be shocked to see this happening quick. And Harbor is the company that comes to mind that was the first kind of mainstream name doing this three, four years ago. So I don't know if that answered your question, but I certainly believe in it and think it makes sense. Yeah. If they can find a way to send net operating income or proceeds to the token holders in some other cryptocurrency, maybe. Um, yeah. It seems simple. seems really simple. I think whoever does it first is going to get a huge push of PR. The property is going to trade up at a one or two cap because people are going to want to buy it. And uh, yeah, I love the thought. I think somebody's going to try it, get some attorneys on board and go down to Miami where the mayor loves that stuff and make it happen. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I guess we all need to go to Miami, but um, yeah, I think like, like you said, it, it is really interesting. We haven't seen much 
actual use cases of this yet probably like liquidity of, of where would you even trade you know this ownership is is something that needs to be solved first but uh, appreciate your thoughts on this yeah i'm on here. harbor right now check out harbor uh harbor.com whenever you you get off here and, and see what they're up to sure definitely will do all right buddy chris if you need to hop off here at any time let me know we no, can I'm, keep going as long as we want. I'm, I'm good fun. till 2.30. Cool. All right, fellas. Um, the, this question is uh, kind of motivated by a couple tweets that come to mind. One was actually by an RV park guy uh, months ago. But he was, he was essentially making the case that you can sometimes get optionality in deals for free in the sense that you might be paying a fair price for the asset, something that's within the broad realm of being fair value at, like at a cap rate level. So I'm just kind of curious if there's anything that comes to mind for attributes that you guys look for in deals. I know, Chris, you had a tweet actually even back in January where you said uh, there's this one billionaire guy who in every deed when he goes to sell, he'll write that he has the right of first refusal to buy it back, which I thought was particularly clever. But uh, anyway, just I'll leave it kind of open-ended like that. And Chris, if you want to answer first, explain what optionality means to the folks who maybe that went over the head of, including maybe me. Yeah, Chris, will you will you add a little more color? Are you just talking about ways that you're getting well, more than what yeah, meets so, the eye? Uh, well, maybe it's something in the form. It could actually be just as vanilla as like in the case of Nick. Like, you know, going in, you're buying an asset, but the way it's priced doesn't reflect the fact that you could actually raise rents materially on day one. Um, but other things might be like the RV park guy I mentioned. He had mentioned an example of improving commercial frontage easily, or maybe you sell some of the frontage, just reduce your cost basis, um, easy ways to add amenities. Uh, that disproportionately, you know, add to NOI uh, in a cheap, effective way. Low-hanging fruit that makes the deal look like a no-brainer, even though if you're just looking at the numbers as they're presented to you in the pro forma, it might just be, say, roughly fair value cap rate sort of thing. Yeah, I think it's all a calculation of risk-adjusted return. If you have to do work to add value, that's risk. If I have to raise rents to add value, that's risk. If I have to add add additional supplemental, you know, income streams out of real estate, piece of real estate, that's risk. Um, RV park guy having to do some work to sell off a piece of property. Maybe somebody doesn't buy it. It's all risk. So the, there needs to be yield baked into that. So yeah, we have a bunch of mom and pop operators all around the country who, you know, we're paying five caps on their numbers, but what do I need to know is what it is on my number? And is it worth taking the risk to buy that property at an insane cap rate on current NOI because I know that I can do X, Y, and Z to make it more efficient and more valuable. You know, that's a, that's a calculation that we're doing in our head every single day to figure out if a deal is worth it. Yeah. I think, um, when I think of some optionality as it relates to industrial, that's kind of been showing up lately, additional sources of revenue that we have not, uh, quite seen yet was the one, which doesn't sound like anything groundbreaking, but, we, but we are seeing it now more and more is, uh, we're looking for lots of properties that have additional land. Um, and we've been signing a lot of truck storage leases that was not baked into the original performas, but especially during holiday seasons. I mean, we were leasing to Amazon, I think, on four or five properties in DFW alone. Now, those were short windows. I think the second, which we haven't actually done yet, but we, we get called by these people all the damn time, um, are people that want to put solar on our roofs 
as kind of, and, and there's some incentive for us to do it. Our problem is the way it's currently structured. If we're not, if we can't guarantee that we're going to own it five years from now, we don't really receive as much benefit as it's worth. And the same thing can be sell, said for cell towers and uh, cell antennas. We get called by those folks all the time. And so we're getting smarter about them. Um, the last one that we've been hearing a lot about is EV stations. Um, there is a race across America right now to get more EV stations uh, with the impending uh, electric cars coming. And because industrials offer lots of parking and typically at night leave have empty parking fields, um, there's opportunities to do like mass fleet uh, charging. So when I think of just optionality that I'm seeing more, the truck storage we're actually doing by the day, but those other three examples we're hearing kind of over and over. And um, while we haven't done them, when you hear enough, you you know something big is coming. Mm-hmm. Yep. I guess a simple way that I like to use, uh, just give it, give a, give a seller an option is always the seller financing. You know, if I come in, say a property in my head, you know, the max I want to pay for a property is a million bucks. All my first offer will be around $900,000. And if they counter at, you know, one, you know, 1.05 million, just a hair over a million bucks, I'll come back and, you know, tweak the terms. And maybe if they hold a second note, then, you know, we can get the deal done at their, at their amount. So I think getting creative with your offer price and, uh, finding a, a structure that works for you at a price that works for them is a, is a thing that I like to utilize. Yeah. The only other thing I could think of as it relates to contracts, I've had a, I've had a multifamily, uh, property under contract for almost seven years now. So we wrote the contract that the seller didn't have to sell until they could find a 1031, uh, a 1031 opportunity. What they didn't strike was that, that it never ended. So we will be under contract on that property until they sell it one day. And, um, yeah, it, it provided them optionality to give them plenty of time to find a replacement property. And all we have right now is earnest money. We get an email every year from the title company saying, are you going to drop this contract? And we say, no, we'll just wait until there's a 1031. Um, and we've done that on a few others. Those folks moved a lot quicker and we got the deals done. But when I think of optionality right now is like, I have an option to buy this property now kind of in perpetuity, um, you know, assuming the seller will ever decide to find a 1031 replacement. Mm -hmm. It's a weird deal. <laughs> That's great stuff. Appreciate it. You bet, man. Thanks, Chris. Travis, Danny, Austin, got some questions coming. Almost 40 people listening now. I love it. Hey, is this working? Yeah. We hey, Travis. Perfect. Nice to meet you guys. Thanks for hosting, Nick. Uh, so read the 2020 annual letter, Chris, and kind of wanted to ask you both the same question about market selection. When you first started out and when you entered new markets, uh, what sort of things do you look for? And then and for the next decade, what do you guys think will be the biggest asset classes and markets um, for real estate? Loaded question. Loaded question. Uh, put, mute, can you mute your, yeah, perfect. So I think a lot of people, I mean, it depends on what scale, right? Are we talking about somebody like me who has a small team and wants to go around and try to carve out enough wealth for their family? Or are you talking about private equity groups and institutional money that want to outperform the market with yield? I think for the small time operator, there's going to be a ton of opportunity in these small, sweaty, um, operations, heavy asset classes, RV parks, 
cemeteries, funeral homes, these, these asset classes that are mobile home parks, self-storage that are really business heavy, meaning an outside investor from way across the country is going to have a really hard time buying this because there's a big business aspect of it, of how you're going to run it, how you're going to operate it. Technology is getting a lot better and um, good operators can group up a portfolio of $50 million worth of those things and sell them for a hundred and make generational wealth. Yeah. As far as how we're looking at markets, um, as it relates to what we're doing, um, you know, I, I am a believer that, uh, what, what's happening with technology today is it works best when, when density is high. Uber works because there's a lot of people in the city. It doesn't work in rural towns where there's not a lot of people. And I could like extrapolate that over a lot of different technology. So while we're in a pandemic right now and it's easy to say that urban centers are never coming back, that's 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 silly. Um, it's actually going to be more important to be in a major city going forward. And another reason why it's going to be more important is when you go out to the, call it the suburbs, and you keep developing horizontally rather than vertically, what I think a lot of people don't uh, think about is um, every time you go horizontally, you have to build another fire station and another police station and another hospital. You are never able to leverage the current infrastructure that's already in place. And what I can tell you is all these cities are broke. They don't have unlimited money to keep building schools and fire stations and uh, you know police stations. And so there's going to also be incentives for developers to come back into the city purely because there's existing infrastructure that you can lay on. So so what are we interested in? We're interested in major MSAs, which I think are going to have bigger moats around them as we proceed forward. Um, it, it's, it's a direct net positive to industrial. Um, so we're looking for population growth. We're looking for business-friendly states. So I think the Sun Belt's going to continue to be great. Um, I even think you're going to see, uh, you know, you're seeing like this change in how cities are starting to market themselves. So, you know, cities like Miami have a moat because they now have this like brand identity. I think you're going to see cities the same way individuals have used social media. You'll now start seeing cities. I'm going to be keeping an eye on like which cities are cool. Um, as far as what asset classes are going to do great over the next uh, you know, decade. One, anything that's already built, I think is going to do great. Um, I think office is going to come, is going to, you know, you're going to be able to buy the dip right now, but I think it's important. Um, I think industrial self-storage, look, Americans love buying stuff and they love to consume. Um, as, as long as that doesn't stop, self-storage will do great. Industrial, look, I can make the case. People have heard me talk about it. I don't won't, won't go on a rant here, but every product that lands at your home has to go through an industrial building. It doesn't have to go through a retail building, an office building, a multifamily unit, a hotel, but it does have to go through an industrial building. And if I believe that e-commerce and people will start keep buying stuff and that cities will keep growing, industrial will be a beneficiary of that. Um, so it's hard for me to say what the best will be. I think there's just some that are going to be more durable than others. Um, but if anything, I think anything built, I think development is becoming more and more challenging by the day. It's crazy to me that governments and politicians approve developments and they tend to make everything more of a disaster and more red tape and harder. I'll leave you with one thing on this on this thing while, while I'm on this soapbox about built stuff. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm ready to stand up on, on one too when you're done, Chris. The Empire State Building was built in like 18 months when it was done in the early 1900s. 
We live in a world, and there's a whole thing on this, and I'll I'll send the link out on Twitter because I've been thinking about this a lot. But we've have all this new technology, all these great new building products, all these great materials. If you were to rebuild the Empire State Building today, it would probably take you five to six years. The cost would be nauseating, um, and it wouldn't work. And really, all that's changed between now and the early 1900s is the amount of regulation. As time has gone by, we've every time something happens in the world, we put another regulation, a new building code, a new this. And that's why I'm really bullish on buying existing assets. I think the next 10 years, it's going to become even harder to develop than it's ever been before. And that's going to make costs go up. It's going to make risk go up. And it's going to, we're going to be spending more time on how to reorient existing space rather than build new space. That's insane. We've made so many technological advances, except it's getting slower and harder than ever to build. Yep. Because of regulation, there's a whole like theory around this regulation crushes everything. And and so let me, let me tell you about self-storage or go ahead, Chris. No, go ahead. No, go ahead. Yeah. So self-storage, I mean, all that is what they've been saying about self-storage for 10 years. Everybody wanted to buy self-storage in New York City for the past 10 years because they're saying, hey, it's it's the supply here is limited. They cannot keep building self-storage in New York City. There's no place to put it. Well, I was reading the Yardy Outlook on self-storage. They added 3.3 million square feet in the past 12 months during a pandemic to the supply in New York City. 17% increase in one year of the amount of supply on the market. Right now, building and permitting, 17.7% of the entire supply is in building and permitting, not opened yet. So there's a hundred, say there's a hundred self-storage facilities in town. There's 17 more under construction or in permitting for every 100 that's developed right now. That's absolutely insane. So, I mean, somebody's lying to us, right? Five years ago, they kept saying, oh, we're going to buy up all the storage in New York City because there's so many barriers to enter here. You can't build here. It's impossible to build. It's really hard to regulate. Self-storage is being built faster than ever. And the money flowing into self-storage is going faster than ever. And honestly, the rates are still going up. So I have no idea what the hell is going on in the self-storage because the 10 by 10 units are renting for more than they ever have. So what do I what do I see happening? Well, I know, and I say this all the time, that at board meetings, the public storage, extra space storage, CubeSmart, all the big players of storage, they're running out of things to buy. They're competing against each other, paying insane money. That's why these cities are getting developed because the developers can sell them at insane prices as soon as they're done or even before they're done. And if they lease them up, they'll triple their money. So like it makes sense to develop because there's so much money heading into self-storage, but not a single one of those five big players, CubeSmart, U-Haul, Space Storage, Life Storage, and, uh, and yeah, one more. Not, none of them have a single shop, a single self-storage facility without a full-time manager on site. A full-time employee is at every single one of those stores. And that makes up 25% of self-storage in the United States. I don't have a single full-time employee at any of my properties. The largest one is over 50,000 square feet and we'll never have a full-time employee at any of our properties. So what do I see happening over the next 10 years? Eventually, I don't know when, one of those companies will decide, hey, maybe we don't have to have a full-time manager at every one of our properties. Maybe we don't. Maybe we're going to embrace technology. Maybe we're going to buy a self-storage portfolio from Nick and Dan or from whoever has can, can, can put a bunch of these things together and we're going to give remote management a shot. I think within the next 10 years, it'll happen. When that happens, the money will begin to flow, not just in the top 200 metros in the United States where you can have institutional sized properties that are four stories, 100,000 square feet with three full-time managers, not just to those. You won't 
because right now those companies cannot make money on a 20,000 square foot property. A 20,000 square foot property in Shippenville, Pennsylvania cannot be made profitable by the big players because they'll put a full-time manager in there. When they adopt a remote management system, I think the world will become flat in self-storage and cap rates will compress in tertiary markets. So people like me who have rolled up a bunch of them will have something a little bit more valuable. Are we going to hold our breath? No, because things move very, very slow. But I've just been absolutely fascinated by this narrative that self-storage is cannot can continue to be constructed in these towns and they're repurposing, they're tearing down buildings, they're putting storage everywhere. So I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen there. Now that was my soapbox, Chris. Yeah. It's just a great question. I mean, I had a guy on the podcast earlier. It's coming out next week. His name's Andrew Farah. He owns a company called density and they build sensors to see how much, uh, in an office building, like how much of the space is being used. He had a stat this morning that was crazy. 48% of the, the the lease space in the world that's paid for, like people lease it and pay for it, really never gets used. So when you think of like an office building, you have like all these big conference rooms, like rarely is anybody ever actually in them or they're built for 20 people, but there's always just two people in them. Um, mm-hmm. he, he just made this case that like, uh, there's like billions of square feet that we have built that people lease, but never gets used. And that the biggest opportunity going forward is not building more stuff is figuring out how to maximize efficiency of what we've already built because we have way more real estate than we actually need. We just, uh, you know, we just haven't figured out how to use it yet. So, yeah, it sounds like a WeWork pitch deck. Yep. But um, yeah, I mean, I mean, my house has five bedrooms and we sleep in three of them. And we have a, I have a house in New York with five more bedrooms that an Airbnb guest, an Airbnb guest stays at one, you know, one or two nights a month. But yeah, it's, uh, I think technology will flatten. It, real estate is just so far behind the curve when it comes to technology that there's going to be a ton of innovation and a ton of use cases for small gritty entrepreneurs to come in and just run this real estate a little bit better, whether it's RV parks or mobile home parks or storage units or whatever it is, you can make some life-changing wealth in a little $500,000 property. And if you put together 20 of those, you can uh, change the trajectory of your entire, uh, you know, last name. We're running out of time here. Maybe we got time for one more. Travis, we really appreciate it. Hey, y'all there? Danny, hey, how's Danny. it going? Hey, how's it going? Appreciate you guys and everything that y'all really give to the community back. It's it's, it's very appreciated here. Um, just wanted to ask some questions more for some practical advice. You know, very young in you know my real estate career, and I hope that you know over twenty or thirty years I could work hard and smart and build something out of it. Um, in terms of sourcing deals, you know, without having a network of brokers or people like saying, "Hey, you might want to take a look at this." Like, what what would y'all say? Either what did y'all do when y'all were getting started or just to get rolling on some stuff? You've seen a lot of numbers. You're doing all your homework, but now it's just kind of time to get down and, and put something on paper, I guess. I'll say that um, the best deals, they're gone before they hit the market or if they have a really good broker, they're gone very shortly after they hit the market. Um, right now, it's such a competitive buying environment that we are only winning deals because we can have the confidence to underwrite them correctly and come in really quick with a strong offer that we believe in and convince them to take it before all the people who aren't quite sure get around to it. So it's very hard, very hard to start out because you're never confident enough to put in an offer right away. I was doing a self-storage consulting call with a guy 
two weeks ago and he's and i was like um we're halfway through the underwriting and i realized it was a hell of a deal and i'm like hey what kind of broker is this has he marketed it yet um are people showing it has he talked to you and he's like oh no he said he'll give me time to look at it and i said you don't have time you don't have time you need to talk to your wife and you need to put an offer tonight if you want to buy this thing or actually right now you should have done it three days ago and sure enough a week later he texted me and said you know they, we waited too long and, and somebody else got the deal, but that, that makes, just makes it really hard. And I don't mean to discourage you, but you're going to have to find something that's not well marketed. That is maybe not even for sale and build up your data because I can only make quick offers on self-storage facilities be, because I have 15 of them running right now. And I can look at the P and L's and I can compare them to my projections and I can make very accurate estimates of what that property is going to do for me once I own it. Now you are not in that situation. So you got to find something that you can buy for the right price with some contingency room in there because you don't know what's going to happen. You need to run a worst case scenario and be okay with it. And you got to be really, really resourceful on how you find that deal. So brokers are tough. If it's listed, it's tough. You need to find it, in my opinion, an off market deal. And it doesn't help. It doesn't hurt if you get a competitive advantage, meaning a self storage facility is worth more to me than it is to anybody else. I know that because I can cut costs and I can drive revenue. You got to find that competitive advantage in whatever you are trying to do. Yeah, I don't have much to add. Uh, finding something off market is is kind of the, the the general answer. Danny, are you already in real? Are you already in the business? Are you a broker? Are you are you have another job and you're just looking no. from the outside? No, I. Uh, so we have a small family business and I'm operating that um, actually in in Atlanta, north of Atlanta. And is your, um, is your goal just to like buy a property and have some passive income and build some wealth? Or are you trying to make a career out of this? Um, I would say that the career is probably going to be more in the, the business we're already in sort of as a family. And this is just something I would like to, you know, it's obviously a lot of hard work. It's not going to come easy and I'm not looking to get there overnight or anything like that. I think it's slow and steady. Um, but really you just, have access to some cash, Danny. Uh, yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, man, I would just get really hyper focused on your local market. Sounds like you kind of know it. And I, I would just tell everybody that knows you and around you that this is a goal of yours. And in a, and in a, in a local market, it's just amazing. Um, if everybody knows you're after it and you're kind of using weekends to maybe cold call people or, or, you know, figure out, uh, if there's an off market deal to be had, uh, things will break loose. I think, um, you know, it, it's not rocket science uh, to find the property. It might take a few calls and it might take, you know, a lot of no's, but uh, I don't know where you live, but I would imagine there's plenty of probably target properties that fit your model and you just got to find one. And if you're, you're going to have a lot better success there than competing against a bunch of guys that, you know, have been in it for 10 years, know all the brokers and everything else. Um, so I hope that was helpful. Sure. Thank you all so much. You bet, man. There's, and it's really easy for us to sit up here and, and it's hard. We get this question all the time. And I feel like I'm at this point, I'm giving a cookie cutter response. But the, the truth is there is no right answer. You have to get resourceful and figure it out for yourself. You have to figure it out for yourself. You have to take a risk and you have to go raise some money and try to make it happen. There's no there's no right answer. All right. One Thank more you. question. This one looks like a tough one, Chris. <laughs> I don't know the answer to it, but I do I know I, I have met Austin on, on Twitter a few times. I don't know the answer either. Hear me? Austin, hey, Austin. How's it going? Hey, good to meet you guys. Um, yeah. Got about, 30, got about 30 seconds. Perfect. Well, yeah, simple question. I mean, with the new uh, news under Biden's tax plan, um, you know, curious if installments 
sales will become more in favor when you're talking to sellers in order to you know smooth out those capital gains for them and i know that there's the deferred sales trust in quotations which i believe is a trademarked kind of program under some group so i'm curious if you guys have experience with those types of deals man i have zero yeah i think i think getting creative is gonna have to start happening though like like we said in the beginning chris i think doing something to ease the tax burden for sellers is going to be a focus of ours, whether it's seller financing or yeah, them holding the note of, of any kind installment plans, anything that we can do to help them pay less taxes is going to be a win for us because they'll sell it to us. So yeah, I, I think you're on the right track by getting creative already. One other thing I would just add to this kind of conversation, I can't answer your question specifically, but it is something I've picked up on over the last like 15 years in real estate. The way big bro- the way broker shops work is they understand what the pitch is that matches that time. So an example is in like 0809 when the world was crashing, it was the blend and extend pitch. They would go to tenants and say, hey, your landlord's probably willing to drop your rate if you'll extend your term. There's always like some pitch for the time. What I would do is call a couple brokers around the market and say, what are you guys telling sellers now that taxes are going up? The way they work, because their whole pitch is to always get somebody to transact. They need somebody to transact. And so what I, all I'm saying is one way to figure out what ideas might be circulating on how to circumvent this increase in taxes is to call some brokers because they always seem to kind of know what the like flavor of the week or the pitch of the week is. And there will be one that's going rampant if taxes do go to 43%. It might be some type of deal structure. There's going to be something because the answer isn't do nothing. Um, And that's usually who I'll call at times to go like, hey, what's, you know, how do we navigate this? That's their whole job is getting people to transact. So they kind of have to know what to say. I hope that's helpful. Yeah, for sure. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks for always interacting on Twitter, Austin. I love your uh, posts on there. So thanks, yeah. for, thanks for coming on. Cool. Thank you. All right, guys. Thank you Closing. so much. Closing thoughts, Chris. Uh, I'll, I'll pause this. I'm going to kick. Sorry, I'm going to kick, kick him off. Yeah, some parting thoughts and then we'll uh, wrap it up. Yeah, my parting thoughts are one, we should do more of these just, uh, you know, every now and again. But um, overall, I think things are teeing up to be very good for real estate uh, over the next few years. And it's easy for me to sit here and say that because I'm in the industry, but it's what I said earlier. Interest rates are low. People are about to start coming out of hibernation. Uh, Inflation's running. Um, people want protection, um, people want yield and, um, yeah, I just think we're in for a good run. The taxes don't help the the situation, but I I think in the grand scheme of things, it's not the biggest problem to deal with. I hope you're right because I'm in the thick of it, (laughs) (laughs) but yeah, thanks. Thanks for, uh, shedding your, your knowledge, Chris, and, uh, we'll do, we'll do more of these. Thanks for the 35 or so people that, tuned in and this will go up on the podcast. So if you're listening on Chris's, maybe, maybe I'll put it on his YouTube channel. And if you're listening on the sweaty startup, we appreciate you guys tuning in and, uh, keep a lookout. If you're on Chris's newsletter or my newsletter, um, we're going to send out notifications that these things are happening. You can get in and ask us some questions. Thanks guys. Appreciate it. Bye.